gentlemen, this is Democracy Manifest. The Culture and Anarchy Podcast. It is a horrible idea that there is somebody who owns us, who makes us, who supervises us, who can convict us of court crime, just for what we can. watching. We have to get through. The Culture and Anarchy Podcast. All of this could be part of a plan. It looks to me like a place where you'd get revenge on your crazy professors. Have a look at the headlock here. His technique was perfect. It is sweet and wonderful. G-Saw gang, have a plan. Postmodernist nonsense. They intend to hijack the gold. Yeah, I say, well, how would you describe the prison scene? I said, baby, it was just wrong to wrong. Oh, his technique was perfect. These odds. Culture and anarchy. Sweet, 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 democracy manifest. The Culture and Anarchy Podcast presents A Rationalist Critique of Deconstruction Demystifying Post-Structuralism and Derrida's Science of the Non Part 3 The Failure of the Difference Principle Saussure and Levi-Strauss, in building a rationally constructed theory of knowledge and language on the necessary oppositions that arise between polarized concepts, had created a system of rational order and regularity as a linguistic philosophy that, in order to remain consistent with its own dictates, had to bring into existence its own doppelganger, a cook to its own raw, or a non-structure to its own structure. This non-structural doppelganger was binary instability, or free play. In Derrida's vocabulary, we shall see the non-structure that existed in the negative space surrounding structuralism, like the waters upon which the deity moved before creation, is manifest in difference, which is difference that is different even from itself. While common sense might tell us that difference from difference is the same thing as sameness, Sameness is different than difference, and hence has to be deferred to difference. The rationalist would agree. After all, value is subjective, and scarce means have alternative uses. There are different uses for lumber than the ones I can devise through my own experience in utilizing lumber for construction and kindling. The opposition is not defaulted to construction or kindling. There are many other uses for lumber available in the marketplace. Baseball bats, for instance. Deconstruction, then, filled that necessary gap in the structuralist program as the non-structuralist ideology, a neo-Parmenidean theory of motionless movement and infinite difference. Derrida notes that structuralism justly claims to be the critique of empiricism, but that its proponents, by submitting everywhere words in oppositions to scrutiny, can always be completed or invalidated by new information, just as any other empirical hypothesis. Derrida's critique of structuralism as a specific rationalist enterprise, one that had attempted to deflate the empiricist paleontological approach to linguistics, 
was refined, subtle, undoubtedly correct, and incredibly controversial. But deconstruction as a critique of rationalism in general is also, I contend, gloriously naive. To spot a flaw in a philosophy is not to justify whatever comes after. Derrida's justification of his own position is sorely troubled by a rationalist critique from the standpoint of human action. Derrida ought to have ended deconstruction at showing the absurdity of establishing meaning through binary opposition and the notion of structurality in the structuralist program. After all, pointing out a fallacy through a reductio ad absurdum only shows the inconsistency of the philosophy under scrutiny. A reductio ad absurdum does not validate the reductio ad absurdum as a methodologically sound philosophy. That a flawed argument that first aired Northwest in pursuit of North does not justify a criticism coming from the South, a traditional opposition. Because structuralism worked from an irrationalist premise, a tabula obscura, Derrida did not have to face up to that challenge since owning the opposition was the argument. The absurdity evident in the fact that the structuralist simply dismissed with the pre-structural chaos of thought with the arrival of language under the assumption that the tabula obscura was originally there presupposed the continued presence of that pre-structural chaos of thought as the binary of structure. Derrida appears to have gloried in the triumph, and post-Derridean deconstruction, post-structuralism, own the fallacy by jumping into universal opposition to elementary logic, economics, reason, human nature, and grammar. The Derrideans overstep the applicability of deconstruction as a critique of structuralism alone. Derrida's life's work was largely dedicated to undermining each logical system that he deconstructed by applying the system under his scrutiny unto itself in ways that the founders of each system had generally not considered. What I mean to say, and I think this is the key to understanding the genius of Derrida, as well as his key error, is that Derrida critiques structuralism by applying the principle of structure to structuralism and so on, throughout his investigations into the centers, or the defining principles, of philosophical systems at large. Like a saber at the hip, structuralism and its host of assumptions, along with its daunting scientific terminology, rattle along with Derrida whenever he abandoned dwelling in Audi Road a colonelling and deconstructive skirmishes with the classics. Derrida, as noted before, did not pull each brick from a wall systematically, like an engineer trying to get back to the keystone in an orderly fashion in order to understand where a mason succeeded or erred in his calculations and argumentations. What he wanted to show was that any brick in that wall was a potential keystone, and that the mason's keystone was a bias, or later on, as Derrida and Marx joined in matrimonial bliss, a class interest rooted in false consciousness of a racial, geographical, ideological, religious, logical, economical, or sexual majority. The difficulty of pinpointing a typical Derridean error lay in riddling out the oppositional error that was original to structuralism. But in the process of riddling out that opposition, one was drawn into the trap of Derrida's tangled web of binaries, the structuralist value-meaning fissure and the holy trinity of sign, signifier, and signified. 
To combat deconstruction, one first had to understand structuralism. And to understand structuralism, one had to engage in a rather more difficult task of cobbling together a coherent picture of what structuralism was, since one could only cobble those ideas together from Saussure's disjointed lecture notes, which were one's only guide. And even then, for an individual ignorant of French, one had to rely upon translators of this distinctly French course of study. Legions of professors and students with weak foundations in logic and grammar were quickly seduced by this trick of differential analysis into abandoning reality for postmodernist irrationalism. In the process, deconstruction opened up a new field that provided an indefinable negative space in which the postmodern intellectual attempted to undercut rationalism's epistemological foundation, which traditionally held that human experience is the product of the subjective experience of autonomous individuals. Structuralism was supposed to be working from a rationalist premise, but that premise was flawed from the very start because it ignored what was called grammar amongst the Greeks, subject plus predicate plus object, which was patterned upon the deductions of human action that only arrived on the scene in comprehensive form during the Enlightenment and the century after in marginal utility economics of the Mengarian tradition. It is a truth almost universally acknowledged in academic philosophy that a philosophical inquiry, to remain consistent, must bear up to an application of its own inquiry. Rational actors use means to attain ends. If one tries to invalidate this theorem, one confirms it. But a materialist critique of metaphysics, for instance, would always employ the language of metaphysics, and would thus always carry metaphysics within the critique. Materialism would always carry with it the specter of its binary opposite in metaphysics, since materialism could not come into being without metaphysics as its constant foil. Structuralism could only retain its power as a linguistic philosophy in an empirical world in which deconstruction was already extant as the cause for the structural effect. Structuralism, as a structural study of language, carried with it rhetorical non-structure. Even worse, the notion of the structured and premeditated superstructure of language carried with it a theory of the overarching ideology that pervaded language usage independent of its actual users. While scholars have traditionally placed writers, philosophers, and historians into convenient labels and categories, the free play that deconstruction opened up necessarily affected not only every written text, but through the notion of superstructure, ideology, and free play back upon the readers, those who structure and reconstruct text in reading. Deconstruction as the shadow of structuralism stressed the inconsistency of the binary opposition, often by showing how the theory of opposites presupposed a series of unexpected oppositions, even in signs and reference. After all, Many binary oppositions bear with them certain cultural or contextual presuppositions in a political, social, economic, or ideological hierarchy. This was especially true in the structuralist system, for Saussure worked up from a basic irrationalist premise which stressed that there was no rationality independent of one's language. What subjective meaning or value one would attribute to such oppositions would very much depend upon one's placement within a political, social, economic, or ideological hierarchy concerned. 
What savvy individuals should have spotted in this tabula obscura was the fault in logic. If individuals are basically irrational without language, then how did language develop without subjects, or individuals, who engaged in actions, predicates, as a result of preference, to gain knowledge of language's utility for further linguistic activities, such that they would choose to continue employing language for communication, the organization of thought, or interpersonal exchange, rather than to refrain from doing so. Rationality always precedes language. The rational underpinnings of any coherent expression rely upon the subject-predicate standard that is the expression of humans using means to attain ends in the passage of time in the realm of space. This draws us back to the law of identity. Is A actually A? Or is A just a unit of B, C, and D? And if A and B are identical, and B is the same as C and D, then why do we have knowledge of what is separate from A in space and time? Some reversals of traditional hierarchies are obvious. Some antebellum slaves would see slavery in a different light than their owners. Some northern whites would see slavery in a different light than the 20% of southerners who actually owned slaves. The 80% of non-slaveholding southerners would see the institution in a different light than the aristocratic slaveholders. The 1% of slaveholders who held over 70% of actual slaves would see slavery differently than the 99% who held smaller numbers of slaves. The abolitionist Lysander Spooner saw economic slavery under Lincoln's anti-secessionist forces as comparable to chattel slavery. And quite a few rational individuals would agree that a Marxian dogmatist understands metaphorical slavery to capitalism's anarchic mode of production in a completely different light altogether. Other reversals may not be so obvious. A female encountering he as a gender-neutral pronoun, or man as a gender-neutral term for humankind, may see in such words an ideological prejudice embedded in the Western tradition, which has undeniably been male-centered in its outlook for various historical, biological, and psychological reasons. Even a male who self-identifies with the female gender may see in he an oppressive pronoun limiting gender identity. He carries with it a differentiation from all non-he entities. The gender-neutral pronoun Z instead of he, or zur instead of his or her, could potentially eradicate such oppressions by avoiding sex or is a gender altogether. Some of the changes we have seen in the past century were rationally feminist, that is, employing she and her instead of strictly male pronouns as a proxy for one, could help to universalize a text and acknowledge a diverse audience. I myself pepper a text with gendered and sexed pronouns to increase its referentiality. But now imagine if I took this to the extreme, and instead of limiting one to divisions of he and she, I began to utilize a black transgender homosexual instead. The particularity would increase its referentiality, perhaps, but only by excluding some other specific references, like a straight white heterosexual and cisgender male. When allied to deconstruction, however, such reversals in sympathy, empathy, and understanding could expose the instability underneath the stability proclaimed by the structuralist methodology with regard to meaning and binary opposition, and even with regard to rationalism itself.
the hierarchy of values that the West had established could, by means of a deconstructive lever, be tossed upon its head. As a result, truth became a difficult thing to pin down in the deconstructionist non-structure, since truth was always contingent upon the binary oppositions that might arise from the subjectivity of human experience within the diachronic and synchronic flux of time. Diachrony is change over time. Synchrony is change within a contemporaneous setting. While we might use these measures very loosely to set parameters for time, all change is change in time. That is precisely why it is change. Structuralists here introduce a kind of intertemporal margin, characteristic of historicist thinkers, where time is held constant. This is a bit like a macroeconomist who looks at a market price in a given time frame and then seeks to find some normative ratio of goods and services within that nexus, ignoring that what she treats is the result of a preference that aimed at future goods is the result of her own preference that aimed at future goods, which is a better understanding of past valuations. In essence, deconstruction was the science of the non, a philosophy that took up the indefinite negative thinginess surrounding a definite subject to examine philosophical and epistemological problems from a disembodied, ghost-like perspective. In actual practice, this was not that harmful. It was a bit like examining a single market transaction enacted by a particular individual from the perspective of every other market participant. But deconstruction rarely ended there. Like Archimedes at his lever, Derrida and his energumens appear to have believed that they could set the world in motion from a timeless and placeless void without setting for themselves a particular goal for their deconstructive actions. As far as they were concerned, meaning lay in language, not in action driven by ends and values. What was critiqued was always critiqued from a social or market perspective and not an individual point of projection, even though social perspectives are actually individual valuations that tend towards agreement. The key to the success of this strategy was to avoid economic terminology, to acknowledge that multiple points of projection engaging in purposive actions, deriving meaning from a piece of literature, or contextually riddling out a single word's value or meaning, arrive at a picture of language that displays order and stability, to ignore that purposive actions arrive at a picture of language that displays order and stability, even though that order and stability were not the ends of each individual transaction, is thus to acknowledge microeconomic rationalism and market society, and with them the entire body of microeconomic laws. To acknowledge these same principles is to reject the anti-capitalistic mentality that has dominated the academy in its revolt against reason throughout the 20th century, and which has defined Western Europe's economic thinking since the early 19th century. The goal of economic transactions, absent force and fraud, is the harmony of self-interest in giving this for that. What if, the deconstructionists seem to think, we could analyze those transactions, yet withhold the harmony of long-run interests by refusing ourselves to cooperate in understanding value and meaning, thus always decentering the discussion to pursue some other value and meaning than the one that we would, contextually, be bound to accept within the framework of any kind of rational exchange. 
The economist will understand deconstruction as the science of costs, but the Derridean has understood deconstruction's apolitical atmosphere as a place where no decisions are ever necessary to determine the alternative foregone. In deconstruction, everything is cost from someone else's perspective. In this, the charge that deconstruction is inherently relativistic, which economists, philosophers, and logicians have prima facie laid at Derrida's doorstep, is fully justified. Binary opposition establishes comparisons between relative terms by default. If value is subjective and meaning is dependent upon sounds and phonetic units, the Derridean rebuts, then there is no objective value or meaning outside of a specific historical empirical context, because that objectivity would be measured in language, which is established by a collectivity in myriad exchanges. Everyone sees in a given word, sentence, proposition, or piece of literature a different meaning, based on subjective experience. But subjective experience is conditioned in its logicalness and rationality by the oppositional binary of structure as against the pre-structural chaos of thought, which is the province of psychology. Every truth that one can establish carries with it a host of non-truths, for meaning is a function of lexical oppositions, not the thoughts of autonomous individuals. As one can see, a critique of deconstruction faces a rather large challenge if it cannot establish a priori true methodological grounds by which to critique deconstruction or to root out structuralism's faulty value-meaning dichotomy, which attempted to root rationality in language itself. When deconstruction was arriving on the scene, the humanities had already begun dispensing with microeconomic rationalism and theories of human action. Socialism had arrived, and the revolt against reason was in full swing, with hosts of new student loans guaranteed through the GI Bill, all the way through federally guaranteed student loans. Grammar was no longer the English department's stock and trade. That was the stuff that graduate students did in composition. And what was practiced while teaching introductory English classes as teaching assistants and graduate residents. Grammar was the humdrum stuff. Fixing subject-verb agreement, showing that standalone dependent clauses formed incomplete ideas, and demonstrating how punctuation, a mere formalism, was best utilized within a language to express pauses, the end of a predicate, or completeness. It was not the purpose of the humanities to bridge the gap between language, logic, and economics. With Marx's theories now at hand, the purpose was to show how the current stage of evolution in economics, which was a study of social development and not human action, determined the present state of logic, and how that logic could change if economics were overthrown. What the graduate resident reinforced in English 101 was not related to anything else that was taught at any other level. Grammar and logic were boring. Never mind that they were correct, and that these two practices were what gave the humanities its humanity. And who, in a literature department, would want to delve into a priori grammar if professors, who were not schooled in logic and grammar, disregarded it altogether out of laziness or ignorance because they could get tenure by writing about new developments in European navel-gazing? Deconstruction is only partly correct in its own defense since an a priori truth criterion is necessary to establish the non-existence of objective values and meanings outside of historical empirical context. Namely, objectivity does not exist outside of context is an objective statement 
that must exist outside of its historical empirical context in order to remain a priori true. The statement must be a priori true in order to have any meaning, since the future is neither known nor experienced. One cannot determine that objectivity does not exist outside of context will hold true in the future, since the future has not submitted itself to existence. Either deconstruction is a priori true, or else it is meaningless, just another empirical dogma. Furthermore, how should we explain the fact that all knowledge, every individual action that attains to knowledge, or every subject involved in a predicate that yields new information regarding the subject or the predicate, aims at a future understanding? Microeconomic rationalism fills that gap by outlining the time-invariant features of human action. Deconstruction tried to solve those issues by chalking them up to linguistic norms or by co-opting several snatches of philosophy pinched from Wittgensteinian positivism. Analytic truths were merely true by social convention, prior to experience, a la Bertrand Russell, or a social hierarchy. Since language was a product of a collectivity, namely market exchanges, usually understood instead as a homogenous Marxian class, the collectivity essentially projected its values upon the speakers of a language. Psychology supplied a necessary supplement to this process. But how psychology could ever provide that supplement without introducing its own structural assumptions was never clearly established. The attempt to establish the supplementarity of psychology would introduce another difference. The split between the a priori and the a posteriori always draws us back towards Kant's synthetic a priori. But in deconstruction, one could not establish such concepts beyond their appearance in language. Apodictic certainty, a transcendental signified, was a phantasm for the deconstructionist. The attempt to establish a truth that transcended language was futile, since we could only express that truth in language, and language was the measure of language as defined by an overarching, non-individualized social hierarchy. Language gave structure to the swirling primordial chaos of thought, and the chaos of thought undergirded the linguistic theory. The problem for structuralism and deconstruction is plainly clear. It is not simply enough to insinuate that the mind is faulty, deluded, irrational, and incapable of sensing the true form and shape of things, since this statement proceeds from the same faulty, deluded, and irrational construct that was capable of engaging in the massive complex of actions that results in a language. If it is true that the mind is faulty, then how could this be true if the mind is at base a swirling chaos of thought? If language establishes the logical structure of mind, then who establishes the language that establishes the logical structure of mind? This who was clearly a linguistic community, but as the praxeologist knows, a linguistic community presupposes individual needs, desires, meanings, and values, and preferences on an individual level. We always presupposes I. Even on deconstruction's own grounds, we are drawn back to the facts of human action, not language, and the metaphor of language as a medium of exchange. If the mind can perceive the truth of its own faultiness, then the mind cannot be irreparably faulty and irrational. A language is a record of thoughts, but thinking and speaking are active processes. Furthermore, 
The act of testing language and its particular differences, even at an atomic level, is an active process using some particular linguistic means aimed at an end. This appears to be a self-interested process that sees advantages and disadvantages in the means. We know this to be true by experience, for we know it also to be true by action. In their focus on costs instead of preferences, the Derridians are really nothing more than Neo-Parmenidians and indifference theorists. Everything is cost in deconstruction, but nothing ever fills the need of a satisfactory value in purposive action to alleviate an acting subject's felt uneasiness. The subjectivist definition of satisfaction is the psychic satisfaction attained as the alleviation of a felt uneasiness. In economics, the economist treats of the conditions where satisfaction is the expectation that purposeful behavior has the power to remove, or at least to alleviate felt uneasiness. However, speech, acts, and rational argumentation require, at the very least, uneasiness and the image of a more satisfactory state than what exists at present. Wishful thinking without action is not the economist's subject matter, but wishful thinking does contrast a state that one prefers more against a state that one prefers less, namely the present. Thinking and ranking does constitute a preference for delayed action with certain resources, material goods, labor, energy, etc. But it is itself a form of action that requires time, labor, and energy. This is most easily observed where scarcity and danger exert their presence most forcefully. Costs presuppose the exercise of preferences in instances of human action, since costs are only ever incurred when humans act. Human action, choosing between alternatives to change the course of events from the way they would have gone in the absence of one's interference in order to satisfy desires and to relieve uneasiness. A man chooses to skip a stone into a lake instead of refraining from doing so. He simultaneously refrains from dancing in the rain. Difference cannot arise without choice, and choice presupposes the existence of pre-structural a priori assumptions, in particular, conjunctions and the syncategorimata. For example, the words and, but, or, to, of, across, and so on. Deconstruction had not yet mastered the one lesson of economics, that for every action there is a cost. Without action, there are no costs. But without action, there is no knowledge, since no human can act in no space and no time to interfere with non-events. Acting and preference no doubt constitute the metaphysics of presence, that deconstruction attempts to differentiate from costs and differential non-variables of difference. How costs could ever arise, then, within a deconstructed world of subjective valuation without a human actor undertaking meaningful, purposive action is impossible to explain. Presence is the correlative of absence. The two go hand in hand and presuppose one another, as do all correlatives. The subjective value economic tradition showed in no uncertain terms that an immensely complicated mechanism existed in market pricing, which worked and solved problems frequently by means which proved to be the only possible means by which the result could be accomplished, but which could not possibly be the result of deliberate regulation because nobody understood them, much like the totality of language. 
if regularity existed in language on the macro scale, but no one single linguistic mastermind is capable of stepping outside of language to order the language that orders the minds of humankind, then how does one make empirical pronouncements of meaning from the assumption that meaning is determined by lexical opposition? Had the post-structuralists been anyone but atheistic Frenchmen, they might have posited that God created language, just as the old Thomist and scholastics were tempted to do so. Had they not been stolid Marxians, they might have seen in social superstructure the equivalent of the market, and thus avoided the many economic fallacies into which they fell. Had they understood that money is a commodity and a medium of exchange in any free economy with private property and private ownership in the means of production, they might have been better equipped to understand their own monetary analogies. How has the Derridean stepped outside of teleology to arrive at an empirical pronouncement of costs from a place of teleological inactivity? Like the structuralist looking at the intertemporal margin of language, how has the Derridean stepped out of time to hold meaning constant, even in differential analysis? The Derridean has here run into the biggest problem of apolitical invert fry analysis, which can only be solved by turning to the central problems of praxeology. This stumbling block in deconstruction's path would have been much easier to avoid had the Derridians not attempted to reinvent the praxeological wheel from scratch. When humans act, they choose between alternatives. Any cognitive recognition of action, which we would identify as the atomic level of knowledge, a subject and a predicate, requires at least two terms. In some languages, Latin, cogito, a single term might do the trick. But even in the first-person conjugation of cogito, there is a subject and a predicate, namely, I think. Where the subject-predicate standard is absent from thought, knowledge is impossible to obtain, and action does not occur. When humans act, this cognitive standard is the model for knowledge. The notion of causality has been the subject of much criticism and skepticism by Catholic empiricists. But in subjective value economics, the principle finds its explanation. The archetype of causality research was, where and how must I interfere in order to divert the course of events from the way it would go, in the absence of my interference, in a direction which better suits my wishes? The phrase, I exist, is more difficult to understand. Existence is not a predicate, the old Kantian will profess. Existence is a predicate, and it isn't in a way. What is existence? It is the realm of time, place, space, extension, and so on, all the way down the Aristotelian categories. To know of existence is to engage in action, to use means in order to attain ends, which presupposes the passage of time, since this too must be rationed in the selection of an alternative, to act in such a way as to redirect the course of events from the way that those events would go without one's interference, namely, existence without human intervention, which presupposes time-invariantly operating causes, in a direction that would then better suit one's own desires, desires that are not time-invariant, because they are particular, and in coordination to supply, and is ranked on the margin with regard to some alternative foregone. Thinking of this atomic level of knowledge as atomic, 
may be a little misleading. If I were to examine the following expression, I would recognize the existence of a subject and a predicate. Justice. To examine that standalone expression, justice, or even to examine an acorn in the forest, I would have to recognize a priori in myself an acting subject, a subject I, a predicate operate upon, an object, justice, even if justice or the acorn contains no information at all about the deductive subject-predicate relation of my action as a reader or an acorn gatherer, which is rooted in the time-invariant feature of human action as such. I is somewhat ambiguous, since we do not have self-knowledge of I from outside of I. We nevertheless understand the concept of the subject because the subject is involved in predicates. We thus see that we need a subject, and something that tells us information about the subject term. In layman's terms, the subject-predicate standard translates into, something has to happen. A cause must produce an effect, or I must interact with the world. It is simply not enough to chalk up rationality to binary opposition, since binary, one subject and another subject, requires a subject to bring two integers together before the opposition can take place. This information is only ever good for the individual who knows that information, and hence, information refers us back to the acting subject. Intersubjective communication is a problem for uniformity in meaning and value precisely because of the first-person voice of cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. The problem of value subjectivity lies not in language, but in the ambiguity in words that have alternative meanings and values for diverse human actors. The price fetched in conversation, which is a mutual understanding at a particular place and a particular time, aiming at the least miscommunication in order to secure cooperation for objectives, is not necessarily what is meant or valued individually. Furthermore, This is not a problem that gets solved so as to allow for the destruction of cogito. Cogito is a problem that cannot be falsified. It is prior to experience, simultaneous with all knowledge claims that are known, since knowledge does not escape the knower, and since action, which verifies existence, is logically and temporally prior to what is experienced and observed in all cases in which knowledge is obtained and thus known. In economics, we require definite goods between which we might make a preference, and these goods may be action directed towards a certain goal using a specified means, or simply the decision to refrain from acting. To talk or not to talk, writes Ludwig von Mises in Human Action, to smile or to remain serious may be action. To consume and to enjoy are no less action than to abstain from accessible consumption and enjoyment. Structuralism's stress on the binary opposition was rooted in the recognition that knowledge requires two terms or goods. But both the structuralists and the deconstructionists did not understand the ramifications of human action from the rationalist perspective. This is an interesting historical fact, given that the French, by and large, made some of the largest contributions to the Enlightenment and to economic rationalism to undercut the classical economists like Adam Smith, David Ricardo, and Karl Marx, namely Richard Cantillon, Jean-Baptiste Frédéric Bastiat, and Gustave Molinari. 
Deciding that one thing or term is not a second thing or term in logic lies precisely in the decision to act with one thing or term towards a specified goal by foregoing an alternative. Thus we establish the correlative relation between preferences and costs at the root of economics under the division of labor and the private ownership of the means of production. But we can only do this deductively. We must abstract from time and place. And we know that we can do this and achieve absolute certainty because all knowledge conforms to the subject-predicate standard. And the subject-predicate standard is true independent of words. Action and agency are presupposed by any human action, and not only analytically or as a tautology. The teleological metaphysics of presence, which is the striving after ends and the assumption of meaning in one word as opposed to one term or an indefinite binary, is undoubtedly temporally and logically antecedent to the deconstructive science of the non. There could never be a cost in absence without preference, a presence, and vice versa. Such is the definition of action. Valuation and meaning are never fixed. They are subjective. Choosing one meaning over another is a preference. It is a valuation. Action presupposes alternatives such that one could ever choose between this or that. Humans act. That is, human action is governed by a certain purpose that the actor has in view. The purpose of man's act is his end. The desire to achieve this end is a man's motive for instituting the action. This basic assumption of Austrian economics is unconditionally a priori true, and the underpinnings of the action axiom, namely humans act, are undeniable. Any attempt to overthrow the action axiom, namely a transcendental signified, is a human action. Denial or attempted contradiction of the action axiom always entails self-contradiction, for one attempts to apply action in order to prove that actions can exist without motives to action with a motive. The universal features of language enter the praxeological course of study in the nature of voluntary exchange in catalactics, which is an economic category. One would have to act action in order to disprove action, or to compound predicates for a singular subject without acknowledging the passage of time and the necessity of means and ends in each consecutive operation. In essence, one would have to pull off a magical demonstration of bilocation like a cognitive Houdini in order to overthrow the action axiom, yet do so without any overarching long-term goal. To this date in human history, only the theologians have been encouraged by their attempts to promote a line of inquiry that posits a being capable of such a feat. What we realize is that individuals do have motives and preferences independent of linguistic norms based on a range of choices at hand. Language is indeed mere nomenclature patterned upon the logical structure of mind. So much for Saussure and the tabula obscura. The deconstructionist believes that she can admit these truths and still promote deconstruction. Since multiple perspectives view the same object from different vantage points, differentiation occurs. Indeed, value is subjective and scarce means have alternative uses. But admitting this does not justify deconstruction. It justifies the same subjective value theory that undermines deconstruction. Like the Keynesian, the Derridean is vitiated by the recognition that in the marketplace there are more margins than one being scrutinized at the moment. 
There are alternatives to the investigation into alternatives that lie outside of the scope of the investigation. In earlier times, before logic and linguistic faced the onslaught of existentialism, Catholic empiricism, social physics, and doublethink, the action axiom took the form of a basic grammatical assumption. Subjects predicate. That is, every statement that would attain to meaning in an etiological or teleological framework must consist of an underlying term, a subject, and some statement, a predicate, that conveys information about that underlying term. The predicate consists of an action in the form of a transitive or intransitive verb. One quickly recognizes in humans act the basic syllogism. I act, I am classified as a human empirically by finding others who act like me, therefore I act, or humans is a subject and act is a predicate. I am myself as the knower of this information and acting subject, looking for knowledge, an object, constructing a description, or searching for the consilience of knowledge. Namely, I, subject, am acting, verb, towards a goal, an object, or with an object, a direct object. Needless to say, the syllogism is a tautology since action presupposes the informative content of the syllogism, and vice versa. These grammatical categories of subjects, verbs, objects, and predicates are not just passé fads in linguistics that humored metaphysical idols and a priori figments of the religious imagination. They are, in short, the categories required for linguistics, such that the linguist can even study his subject matter. I have often wondered why grammar disappeared from the educational scene in America. I have entertained many theories over time as to why this may have happened. But the most convincing theory is that grammar is too dangerous to the illogic that currently presides in institutionalized education. To admit that logical economics is part of the same human science as grammar, working from rationalist premises, is to admit that economics is a priori true. To admit that economics is true is to admit that the criticisms economics levels at institutionalized education under the control of the state and its public sector unions are also a priori true. What interest do public union employees and Marxian professors who earn their tenured salaries, buttressed by federal student loans, have in that? Furthermore, won't the old grammar trade get tiring and boring? How will colleges continue to promote the humanities exciting and fresh, without a little infusion of continental frippery? Nobody is free from self-interest, and nobody is looking to erode the mestizo transgender homosexual woman's margins. Any critique of one's classification as human, one's selfhood, one's ability to act, or the difference between motion and purposive action would de facto meet the criteria of the action axiom. One could only contradict the action axiom by purposefully undertaking inaction, but the triumph would be short-lived. If the denial of the operation, namely the denial of this atomic truth of human nature, did not take the form of subject plus predicate or cause plus effect, guided by a subjective value in communication or something else, knowledge of the denial would be incomprehensible, unknowable, and useless. Praxeology does not distinguish between active homo agents and passive homo indolence, for the vigorous man industriously striving for the improvement of his condition acts neither more nor less than the lethargic man who sluggishly takes things as they come. Even propositions that grant a positive grammatical existence to negative existential propositions, namely, truth does not exist, 
presuppose an agent, a goal, namely argumentation for the sake of truth, the establishment of a verification or falsification criteria for specific propositions, or simply the random utterance of certain sounds in a linguistic pattern through vocalization as opposed to silence. Causality, the subject-predicate relation, alternatives foregone, and the action axiom. From the action axiom, we have thus deduced the praxeological categories and the a priori foundations of logical economics. These categories are present in every human action, and every atomic fact of historical empirical investigation. In order to study languages completely free of the logical structure of mind from Saussure's macro perspective, one would have to do away with those categories. But imagining them away simply will not do. That, too, would be a human action in time and space, which has an explicit objective pushing it onward. Thank you for listening to the Culture and Anarchy Podcast. Please make sure to leave us a great review on iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube, and check in from time to time to look for updates. Follow me on my Twitter handle at anarchy underscore culture. Keep an eye out for our January issue of The Dial, our quarterly literary magazine, which caters to the libertarian, anarchist, and modern transcendentalist intellectual. We will be podcasting selections of poetry from The Dial over the coming months, So if you would like to contribute poetry and hear your works promulgated throughout the world, please see our submission guidelines at www.culture-anarchy.com. Also, if you are a libertarian blogger or essayist and would like to contribute relevant short essays for consideration to be featured on our podcast as we fill out more content and increase our volume, please forward me your contact information by contacting us via our website, and we shall see if you are saying the best that has been thought and said. We do address cultural, political, and social issues with humor, subversiveness, and levity as they pop up, and we will generally feature content with specific thematic structure. As we conclude our eight-part series, The Spirit of Market Anarchy, stay tuned for our new series, which attacks the root of cultural Marxism in the Collegiate Humanities, a rationalist critique of deconstruction demystifying post-structuralism and Derrida's science of the non. So please come see us at www.culture-anarchy.com. axioms teleological and a priori underpinnings were not apodictically certain, 
such that they are present in any denial of the axiom as a means directed towards a goal, then the argument and its underlying denial could never manifest as anything more than completely subjective self-knowledge, or perhaps as a string of meaningless empirical data demarcated by lexical difference, like apple, bear, cat, derrida. We can only imagine such a world divorced from teleology by foregoing teleology, which would result in homo indolence, which is an active, impassive man. The wax-like mind of homo indolence is molded by a series of ideological phenomena bombarding his tabula obscura, a world established by the difference principle. But any denial of the axiom takes for granted that one is using the denial of the action axiom to communicate one's argument as well as using the argument to convince the auditor of the argument's soundness. Contradiction of the action axiom cannot even be known as subjective self-knowledge without teleology, as we just saw in the case of justice. For knowledge entails action. The auditor must be willing to appropriate both the argument and the denial to test their underlying soundness, and then consider that knowledge correct as a guide to action in order for the thing understood to count as useful knowledge. The a priori grammatical underpinnings of the action axiom will always be prior to the experience of the knowledge that the individual user observes and experiences in the utterances of others. The Catholicized empirical epistemology fails, we now understand, in that it treats observation and experience as ideological properties, and not as the purposive actions to observe and to experience, which aim at knowledge in the relation of concepts and things. Yes, the relation of different concepts and things that are also the same in the sense that they are not me, the acting human subject. Changes in state and space, and action in the passing of time. Difference depends upon relation, and deconstruction reverbs between this correlative relation in the realm of antonomy alone, a slave to the difference principle. But action undertaking can only have been undertaken by first setting goals, ends, and using means for the attainment of future ends by the individual actor alone. The brain's activities are combinatory, bringing nature's unrelated and purposeless things into a human objective and analogy and metaphor play an important role in establishing relations. Since reason is the model for action, and since action is the manifestation of a rational argument, namely, I will use this object for such and such a reason to attain my goal in the future by redirecting the course of events in the way that I would prefer things to go, then reason and human action are congeneric. Rational as a value judgment, as an ex-post judgment, is an ex-post judgment. Reason ex ante, as in valuing, preferring, weighing, projecting, is rational in another sense, namely as bringing ratio, or relation, between integers, means and ends, together for a purpose. To deny human rationality is to suppose that there is another framework for human knowledge and human action. How shall we discover this framework without establishing a relation, even if that relation is an antonymic difference principle? What differentiates human action from purely animal action, even though we intuit similar quasi-rational judgments in non-human animal life, is that human action is understood, that we see in others the same rational capacity, that we can communicate these patterns of thought through exchange, 
that we can interpret historical actions through what we know of human action a priori as acting human beings. Even in animal language, the manner in which geese communicate direction amidst their flight, or the manner in which territorial aggression gets communicated amongst alpha males, will still rely upon some basic assumptions that causes produce effects, that actions involve the use of means to obtain ends, and that time and space are prior to action and not passively registered, such that action could occur and divorce what is present, the metaphysics of presence, from what is never experienced, costs. We cannot communicate these complex theories to other animals, but the underlying assumptions are not thereby vitiated. In this, we see that language cannot be a strictly empirical phenomenon, since any attempt to divorce the a priori subject-predicate standard from experience will of necessity entail a subject engaged in a course of action, a predicate, on an existential level, the actions of a thinker weighing internal thoughts upon a margin in time and space, which can be established in the historical empirical terms only with the aid of a priori theoretical considerations. Nobody would deny that humans once existed without complex languages as we now speak them. Nobody would deny that humans once did not exist. Nobody would deny that some given portion of those same humans were capable of surviving. Nobody would deny that humans have non-linguistic languages, gestures, etc., that communicate sometimes more than a verbal language does. Nobody would deny that those same individuals could use means to attain ends. Anyone who chalks up these norms to social constructions must, on point of principle, show how we can cease speaking in the subject-predicate standard, or cease doing anything in general, including not speaking in any standard whatsoever. And if social construction is, at root, simply a market exchange, and if a market exchange, not enforced by a social constructor or an engineer, is uncoerced and anarchic in tendency, then certainly social construction were better termed market anarchy, or interpersonal exchange. Furthermore, if a social collective first creates a language, and this afterwards devolves down to the individual's, then why do languages become more complex, rather than becoming more fractured, simple, and unusable? Something like the pyramid construction of Egyptian pharaohs declined over time. The defining principle of good architecture is geometry, and geometry, working from a few fundamental axioms, is what is holding up economics and complex human shelters. The a priori theoretical consideration, subject-verb-object, or actors, means, ends, presuppose that difference is a poor substitute in analyses of language for the praxeological categories. We also thus prove that the logical structure of mind is not conditioned by language, but that language is conditioned by teleology and the logical structure of mind. Language and the mind affect one another, and the former undoubtedly enhances the latter. But the logical structure of mind is not coddled into existence by historical empirical input as the bastard child of difference. Nature's motions do not have purposes that can direct a human into meaningful action. Only acting beings have purposes, and they act within a sphere of time and space in which they must calculate how best to achieve their desires against the backdrop of variables and constants, foregoing some alternatives and choosing others. We imagine a black void in the mind, and we then cast into that void various shapes and figures, 
and we see the mind process those shapes and figures. We are fooled into thinking that the void creates the mind by supplying the shapes and figures, even though we neglect to see that the mind is grasping at something more than the void, that the void is an alternative to those shapes and figures, and that all of the shapes and figures conform to some certain assumptions about the grasping. After all, the mind does not take in all of existence when grasping A. It does not grasp B through Z at the same time. It is specifically grasping A right here, right now. Saussure attempted to undercut grammatical terminology in his attempt to treat human beings like stones, while studying what he saw as the true animal, language. For in his meaning-value dichotomy, Saussure tried to prove that linguistic facts do not exist independently of sound sequences divided into meaningful segments. Hence, for the structuralist, nouns, verbs, adjectives, and etc., do not correspond to any undeniable linguistic reality. Hence, description, action, motion, and subjectivity were conveniently scrapped for binary opposition. Mathematical values are set by their relationship to zero as non-zero quantities within mathematical operations, zero being the absence of number. But the absolute value of a word can only be set by its relationship to the object it signifies in the world, as the primary linguistic value for that actual object within the human mind. Language does not imprint upon the mind so much as the mind utilizes language to imprint upon the world the pattern of mind. The logical structure of mind is a biological technology that comes to define the world, not to be defined by the world, the non-human realm of pure causality without agency, for example tsunamis. Knowledge of an actual object is only valid for homo agents and goal-directed activities, even the activities that try to isolate value units for a study of history, namely structuralist linguistics and external language. What, after all, is the zero quantity, the almighty non, by which to grade the value of all words independent of human agency and the will when we study language from a macro perspective? What does all words mean? Is not all words simply a collective average of grammatically arranged terms, a mere class of each and every individual word, the grand category mata? Are not all words subjects about which something else has been predicated? All words are uniquely different within the realms of speech, language, and writing, and difference itself is often taken as that zero quantity that determines the value of a word within structuralist and post-structuralist linguistics. I perceive within my purview myriad differences. Difference itself. The tree before me is not the bush, is not the street, is not the man walking down the sidewalk, is not the tree before me, and so on. Green is not red, red is not blue, blue is not green, green is a blend of blue and orange, even though yellow is not blue, blue is not green, and so on. Such is nature, the empirical realm of different things that enter the intellect through sensation. I might definitely determine a correlation between the word twig and the object that it signifies by finding an actual twig in the forest and submitting it to a detailed description. I would thus arrive at a definition for the existence of a historical, or what I shall henceforth call an actual, twig. This actual twig is a twig that I find in nature at a certain place and a certain time. The word twig attempts to combine an auditory signal and an object into one coherent sign. But this homogeneous sign, which combines the actual and an auditory signal, 
is always different than the thing in itself. The thing in itself is the twig that exists in nature prior to my linguistic intervention, namely the actual twig upon which the entire linguistic chain of signification was predicated, or the scarce resource with alternative uses. In its constant and indefinite state of thinginess, the thing-twig would have been subjected to selective blindness as an arbitrary yet existing thing capable of serving as a means to a present end. Whenever it is not present, the twig is lost forever in cost, because it does not become the subject of a cognitive predicate in some combinatory procedure. If humans do not have a use for a thing, empirically or teleologically, they often take no regard of it. After its selection as a means, the means twig becomes a collective group, a kind of ingredient in a recipe of all individual twigs. And I might further complicate the analytically universal twig, the twig type, that it's the signified twig of all actual twigs, by characterizing it connotatively as a kind of stick or tree branch, to spare myself the necessity of consulting detailed descriptions for each word in question by forming ad hoc conceptual categories for objects. I have complicated the twig by deferring its supposed meaning, or intrinsic value, to both stick and tree branch, even though I have simplified my meaning by splitting the semantic difference between different words. I might thus arrive at metonymy and synecdoche to play with correlative parts and holes in linguistic analyses. A question characteristic of deconstruction now arises. How does an individual know what is meant when trading twig, stick, and tree branch with other speakers of a given language? How might we know that these words mean roughly the same thing when we split the semantic difference? What if the meanings are packed in such a way that a meaning has two meanings? We could pause for a moment and look up each word in Webster's Dictionary to seek an answer to the problem of compounded meanings. Of course, we would have to set for ourselves an end in order to undertake such a course of action, and even then set another end when piecing together the different definitions into a vague, unified meaning. Many grammarians and linguists would turn to a lexicon to consult the etymological origin of a word, as if the meaning of a word were something time-invariant and stationary independent of any individual proposition, utterance, or teleological operation. While this may appear to hold true in historical investigations, though I would contend that it does not do so even there, specific terminology, be it that of the natural sciences, economics, or mathematics, will require stability for mass consumption by fixing a theoretical context in which the term is situated independent of time and place. Stability in meaning is imposed by speakers who desire stability for ease of communication. Descriptions tend to suffice for historical empirical entities like twigs, but theoretical constructs like a priori grammar, logic, and economics will tend to remain fixed. Prepositions and conjunctions, which place restrictions or conditions upon both the subject and the predicate, are propositionally specific and by following chains of addition and exception, we reason our way to the best possible truths. For an a priori science, the specific terminology used when discussing that science's principles may have separate meanings in vulgar parlance, but the meaning of such terminology, established within contextual parameters, only has one meaning, a slang term like fresh, which in the 1920s denoted sauciness or sexual forwardness, 
Today signifies trendiness in a specific aesthetic fashion. The various contextual meanings of fresh are never compounded, and the slang meaning of fresh is quite different than the adjectival form that I might use to modify fish. The ambiguity involved resides only in fresh, and its role in changes of condition, and fresh must be used in a definite historical empirical context to have any existence at all. The phrase fresh fruit may serve us in a general sense. But one can see the different historical empirical contexts in which individuals determine the freshness of fruit in a supermarket according to their subjective prejudices and the variety of fruit-examining rituals that those individuals go through, thumping cantaloupes, checking for bruises, comparing qualitative greenness, and so on. We know that the ambiguity only resides in the realm of external linguistics, words themselves, because we cannot know of fresh at all unless a human acts for the attainment of an end by exercising a preference, a subject, a verb, and an object, in a definite historical empirical context. Fresh comes to mean something like new in a universal sense, but in a particular sense, it means something new in very different ways. In other words, meaning remains subjective, and the meaning value fissure never occurs. Because the world in its purposeless motions does not conform to human desires, such that the universe might be tied up in a cosmic striving after ends in a pre-programmed mathematical function, for example, Calvinist predestination or Keynes's consumption function, and because action entails a purposeful redirection of nature's resources towards the satisfaction of human desires, we could never presuppose that human action is predetermined in output in the world's ever-changing conditions. There may be some level of regularity on a macro level, but that regularity is often an illusion. The surface of water tends towards equilibrium in the absence of interference, but we do not assume stillness in the principle. The molecules of water rebound in relative anarchy within, and the cohesive bond of the surface tends towards uniformity. We do not have perfect historical empirical knowledge, and we are capable of learning from experience. Humans do not react to the same stimuli in a uniform fashion, and the same humans may react to the same stimuli differently in the passage of time. Hence, historical empirical context, so sure study of language, is always situated in a process of change, or so a human would argue, even though the logical structure of mind and human action allows us to arrive at a priori truth through pure reason by examining the time-invariant features of action through deduction. Deconstruction supposes that we can hold the meaning or value of fresh constant, or objective, by contrasting the different meanings of fresh in the diachronic and synchronic passage of time against the word fresh, five letters evacuated of meaning. Language is a study of linguistic context. But what is the overarching and static context for the five letters that make up fresh? Contexts are definite determinants upon meaning within the passage of time, and meaning is pressured by definite conditions. So how can we determine the time-invariant feature of fresh when we contrast its alternative meanings as an adjectival modifier? Deconstruction does not suppose that we can do this actively, but it does suppose that we can talk about the meaning of meaning, what meaning does not mean, because of the subjectivity of human experience. 
since we cannot know what fresh is, since any language is a byproduct of exchange between different people guided by subjective valuation, we can only compare it with what it is not, and therefore determine its meaning. By contrasting a Western notion of whiteness against its correlative opposite in blackness, we can arrive at meaning. Regardless of deconstruction's many failings, we would have to acknowledge that the signifier fresh has different meanings in different contexts. When Derrida pronounced his now infamous quip, Il n'y a pas de hors texte, there is no outside text, or there is no outside to the text, he was partly correct. Context, for example a predicate, is vitally important for knowledge of any subject. But deductive knowledge, a priori knowledge, is not only possible, but necessary. Value is not intrinsic, writes Ludwig von Mises in Human Action. It is not in things. It is within us. But if the value is not in things, then it cannot reside in fresh, independent of any one historical empirical context, even the usage that compares the word's many meanings in different contexts. In other words, the value lies in the act of comparing and combining to riddle out differences for some particular understanding, but not in the words that are combined, compared, and differentiated. But what if the fact that I could, if I so desired, read in fresh the same meaning in any context? The use-value canard here rises to the surface, particularly amongst the Marxists, only to sink again into the darkness. The value is not in fresh. It is in the user and signifier and the sciences of thinking and language, logic and grammar. That user may choose, prefer A, and set aside alternatives, B, C, and D, whose use will not be experienced at the moment in the pursuit of a given end, in order to achieve a goal. The only background against which to contrast historical empirical information is provided by deduction. Namely, we understand one another because we strive after goals, and communication presupposes the satisfaction of another's desires through comprehension and the splitting of semantic differences through rational self-interest. The opposite of this is animal ferocity, killing, nature red in tooth and claw. As such, there is a truth that is outside of language. Namely, meaning cannot be measured and quantified in such a way as to make it mean what it does not mean. The attempt to compound meaning would entail that meaning could be held constant in the determination of meaning, despite the constraints of context. We never compound meanings. We merely attach different meanings in different contexts to the same ambiguous word. And temporal contexts are not constant. This moment is not the next. Each comparison is a projection into an uncertain future. Each meaning is meant for a specific context in time as judged against alternatives. This does not mean that the future is kaleidic and chaotic, but that value and meaning are expressions for a given set of circumstances in time. We choose to actively select comparisons to help us attain our individual goals through social cooperation, trading this for that. Unless, of course... We are in a disagreeable mood and choose to foil social cooperation because we have certain destructive tendencies or desires for abstention, not trading this for that. And not because we don't desire the trade, but because we don't think there is a greater advantage in uprooting the trust at the foundation of the trade, 
or we wish to inject uncertainty into a relationship in order to claim a new advantage. For example, inflicting the other party with guilt, ending a relationship in order to start a new one, or else giving ourselves cause for self-pity and consolation. Linguists have no stability in grammatical terminology, since different languages are always guided by a speaker's subjective value. Subject, object, and, of, and, or are not ambiguous terms. And the links clauses and terms within clauses is a clause that attempts to use a syncategorimatic term, and, which is a conjunction, categorimatically as a subject. But what is and? And cannot be a subject in the sentence just provided, since it can only link clauses and terms within clauses. It cannot be and without being the word and in quotation marks. We know and's a priori function. It is a necessary synonymic tool of the logical structure of mind, similar to a mathematical symbol of a plus sign, differentiated from but, which is an exception, like a minus sign, and or, a term that presupposes the ability to choose and incur costs. Or carries with it time, space, and agency, all of which are contextually limited by some constraints, but only after human action occurs. There is no reason that the chicken cannot create the egg, and the egg cannot create the chicken, instead of or, which presupposes one arrangement and not the other, unless we are speaking about the same egg and the same chicken in the same causal sequence. Prepositions, of, about, behind, across, to, are syncategorimatic terms that presuppose spatial relations in the world. Such terms allow us to express changes in state and changes in space. But what does of mean? Of is a preposition that marks a transition into the accusative, dative, genitive, objective case, in English. But this definition of of describes a cognitive event that presupposes teleological meaning, action, and change. Is of a meaningless term just thrown into the mix? Or is of a syncategorimatic term as an expression of the logical structure of mind? What is different than of if we humor the structuralists. A grammatical object, an accusative, dative, genitive term conditioned by a preposition like of, is something operated upon or used in an operation, treated as a means or as a passive thing to be manipulated in part or in whole, just as any object that I use existentially or set as an objective is something operated upon or used in an operation as a means. Just as in teleology, an end, a short-term goal can become a means, an object, used towards some other end, a long-term goal. We thus see the inherent rationality of the capital demand structure. The problem for the structuralist would lie in demonstrating that of is simply different than at in sound, without having just demonstrated that the mind is capable of perceiving the change in state or in space that of, in fact, is supposed to predetermine as the linguistic setter of conditions. Of is necessarily included in a rational process that marks changes in space, relation, and state, and hence of and at are not simply different unless we presuppose the disparate spheres of motion and action, which gives us ground for praxeology and rationalism. Language is not the creator of the mind. What we see in the preceding example is not that empiricism and rationalism are in contention, but that rationalism carries within it the meeting point between human action and the outside world. 
that it encompasses human experience. And what we also see is that the Catholic empiricist has something of the theist in him, a belief, unjustified at root, which holds that the mind obtains order by means of something outside of the mind, a something which is capable of perceiving changes in state in space and injecting those principles into language, such that the language shall ever after mold the future minds according to what the supreme being injects into the linguistic induction machine. But the supreme being acts within a void, outside of time and space. How do we know of this when we are acting in time and space? External language, which is e-language linguistics, on the other hand, as the subject matter of the empirical linguist investigation, is in flux. I speak or write twig, and perhaps you speak or write stick, and together we might agree on a meaning if we so choose by splitting the semantic difference. In order to know if twig, stick, and tree branch mean roughly the same thing, I need to know how they are being used. They must be used, or otherwise they would not be under discussion, and their use presupposes a motive and an end prior to signification. I have already presupposed the a priori categories of action as arranged by grammar, subject, verb, object, and teleology, actor, means, ends, within definite historical empirical contexts. As the Reverend John Tuey puts the dilemma in his treatise on epistemology, ambiguity resides only in words, not in the meaning of words. In an existential proposition like a twig is a stick, which consists of two categorimatic subjects linked by a copula, the person uttering the proposition is making an equivalence between two terms. The second term, namely a stick, is part of the predicate, and therefore is not quite the subject. It is always the subject restated, namely a predicate nominative. While a twig might take on the same vague association with tree branch and stick, thereby adopting a means similar to that carried by the other terms, or perhaps even the same meaning, a meaning has not two meanings. How could it? Try to imagine two meanings coexisting at this moment in your local domain. Imagine them on top of one another, permeating one another, congealing into a unity that is diverse. The oil and water are not mixing. How might we measure the subjectivity of meaning in an empirical unit such that we could pronounce equivalence? What does it mean in empirical terms to say that this chicken sandwich tastes twice as good as the one I ate yesterday? If I say that a twig as a small wooden branch means the same thing as a stick as a small wooden branch, I do not mean to say that a stick is a twig is a small wooden branch, but that a twig is a small wooden branch just as a stick is a small wooden branch with regard to the uses that I make for the stick slash twig. The foregoing relation is rooted in a synonymic likeness principle as a binary complement, and not the antonymic difference principle of binary opposition. The difference principle in structuralism is the point at which an individual must select a means from scarce resources that have alternative uses. But one must first compare them in a physical or logical predicate in order to compare them. The truth at which we arrive in a proposition is not the absolute and transcendent truth of matter as it exists, independent of human cognition, but instead follows a much simpler definition. A truth is something that can be known about a specified object. If I ask a friend to find me a twig, and he replies that he can only find a small tree branch, 
and I then reply in a non-sentential function. Same thing. Which he clearly understands through the subject-predicate standard, even though a subject and a predicate are nowhere in the non-sentential function, same thing, I have not melded two different meanings into one unified metaphysical twig. Instead, I have acknowledged that the tree branch will serve the same end that the twig would have served for whatever goal I have in mind. Without any subjective limitation upon meaning in the realm of action, such as the alleviation of a felt uneasiness, we could never be pleased with any final decision and any truth established about an object. We would always seek after more in Derrida's metaphysics of absence, forever sifting through that lost half of the binary opposition. In this way, we see an early sign that deconstruction is a practice. It is the active quest for inactive variables, costs, that were not experienced in the meaning that was achieved in the majority of voluntary exchanges. Deconstruction wants to turn costs into goods by upending the hierarchy and diving headfirst into a pool of costs. But for the new goods to retain the label cost at all cost, including the denotation of cost. The twig's meaning and value very much depends on what an acting human being, homo agens, seeks to do with the twig in an historical empirical context as a means directed by a goal. The twig is merely kindling if homo agens seeks to build a fire. Plato imagined that the form of the twig, independent of time and place, was the best possible twig, the most perfect twig of twigs, so to speak. But what is a perfect twig? The perfect twig for kindling a fire is a dry, flammable twig. Now, were I a religious dissenter being burned at the stake during the Protestant Holocaust of Queen Mary, I just might think of a perfect twig as a God-sent, fire-resistant twig. No doubt, Queen Mary would have held fast to the flammable ideal of a perfect twig in her holy inquisitions. By stressing the binary oppositions within the works of major philosophers through explorations of rhetoric, Derrida was able to interpose the necessary deconstructionist atmosphere in which binary instability and free play operated between the terms and concepts that those philosophers used. For example, the analytic versus synthetic distinction in Kant and Russell, or Hume's a posteriori versus a priori distinction. Derrida thus attempted to root out the value-meaning dichotomy vested in words in the realms of speech, external language, and writing as a means of communication by moving against the grain of grammatical construction, since the oppositional or differential values of words as mediums of human expression created a necessary ambiguity in the very oppositions that words presented to readers and auditors in different historical empirical contexts. Such ambiguities would eradicate, or at least complicate, the differential values that a writer or a speaker sought in the attempt to establish truth against falsity. Derrida and his post-structuralist energumens have attempted similar critiques of all philosophical systems that attempt to arrive at objective knowledge, and they have done so by pressing deconstruction into the midst of those systems in myriad critiques of binary oppositions and explorations of philosophical rhetoric. Their deconstruction, they have long imagined, is not a constructive process. It does not lead to structure, but rather to the binary instability and oppositional free play that exist in the pre-structural chaos of thought. Like sharks moving through murky waters, 
Postmodern Derridians have seized upon any available medium in a text that might be able to raise the shade of hypocrisy and cultural hegemony. They then redirect the logical text towards rhetorical play in order to investigate other subjective analyses of the binary opposition by posing new binary oppositions. Since white males tend to be the dominant paradigm of cultural discourse, white males are the ultimate white whale pursued by post-structuralist Ahabs and their deconstructionist Pequods. Western grammar and logic, because it is universal, must be particularized into oblivion. And yet, the white whale prevails not by force of whiteness or maleness, but by virtue of logic's universality that move beyond whiteness and maleness. But like most relativists in the realm of epistemology, the Derridians have forgotten Protagoras' criticism of philosophy, Leibniz's critique of Locke, and Schopenhauer's critique of materialism, which remind us that one must always take account of oneself when discussing human action. No individual human being retains the ability to step outside of purposiveness, even in apolitical, vert-fry, philosophical inquiries, because every human being exists within the constraints of time and place, the historical, empirical realm. The only epidictically certain truths, then, lie in the deductive praxeological sciences, for example, economics, logic, mathematics, and a priori grammar. Economics, logic, mathematics, and a priori grammar do not tell us how things ought to be, or even what we ought to do. They simply show us where epistemological contradictions lie, where method is true, and how we know the things that we know, as well as how we do not know them. In the historical sciences and natural sciences, purposiveness takes a backseat to causality, since the etiological relationship between a cause and an effect, though manipulated by the natural scientist, is not dependent upon the guiding purpose of a thing in nature. Nature's motions are constant, Newton's first law, even if the historical empirical province of preferring and choosing is not. The natural scientist is guided by a purpose, but gravity is not intended to be a curvature in space-time. There is regularity in natural phenomena and in the concatenation of purposeless events, but human action is, by its very nature, change. History is a study of human action in the progression of time. It is, de facto, subject to economics and unthinkable without it. Meteors do not have purposes or goals when they crash into planetary bodies. Defensive linemen, on the other hand, have definite short-term and long-term goals when they crash into quarterbacks in a game of American football. Language does not have value. Speakers, auditors, writers, and readers do. Purposive action is the province of teleology. But even etiological analyses, for example, the observation of the meteor that crashes into a planetary body, are subject to teleological calculation because the relationship that is derived between causes and effects takes place within the active human mind, which is always driven by an overriding end wherever knowledge is obtained. Even when engaging in trial-and-error experimentation, natural scientists purposefully manipulate scientific variables against a background of constants in order to see what results may follow against the expectation of the natural concatenation of events that would proceed absent interference. Action, purposiveness, 
the cognitive subject predicate standard, and teleology are all present even in such etiological investigations such that they are known. The rational, logical, and commonsensical attitude usually adopted towards the Derridean corpus tends to run as follows. Your philosophy is mere sophistry. What is your argument? Where is your truth claim? Sophistry tends to get a bad reception, though not bad in itself. It should be remembered that the sophists presented an early challenge to Greek statolatry and collectivism, though not libertarian in spirit. Protagoras, insofar as we understand him through Plato, appears to have been much wiser than heroic Socrates. Deconstruction, like the sophist, never claims to stand behind anything solid, since deconstruction is the science of the non, which pimps the instability in language, meaning, and rhetoric against which structurality contrasts itself to attain to its logical nature. In one sense, deconstruction could be seen as a welcome change from the kinds of socialistic conservatism espoused by Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot, or the spirit of Toryism in stodgy formalist criticism. Against the backdrop of the action axiom, deconstruction's differential value as the science of the non is, quite fittingly, seen to be something entirely different than what deconstructionists maintain that their philosophy is. What is deconstruction? Deconstruction is a philosophy guided by differential values, with difference as its end and any perceived difference as its means. Deconstruction is a constant and ceaseless striving to be different. Is this a revolutionary philosophy of human understanding and language? The answer is undoubtedly no. But it is a philosophy entirely suited to those who are striving to be different, unique, and fresh in academic investigations, and yet require a name-brand philosopher to justify logical inconsistency for publication in a scholarly journal. Americans are prepped for this philosophy almost from birth by popular culture. We are a people that favors the underdog, that desires to punch up at established norms. Derrida is a convenient resource for an otherwise brilliant advocate of literary studies who does not have a foundation in logic, economics, and grammar. At its inception, the philosophy was a somewhat refreshing break from formalism and new criticism. But, like its forebears in literary theory, the deconstructive routine got to be tiring, and politicized deconstructions tended towards a limitation of politically correct viewpoints as class consciousness began to be cultivated by tenured Marxian relics of the 60s in the postmodern academy. Logic and the human sciences became the bane of the humanities, and the inhumanities, irrationalism, anti-economic illogic codified into ethical systems, Marxism, welfare statism, secular statism, Fabian socialism, technocratic socialism, racial socialism, a posteriori epistemology, Catholic empiricism, and semantic nihilism came to define the field of investigation. Logic and economics, because they evolved most significantly amongst white males, were derided as white and male, even though nothing in logic or economics is specifically male or white, since the human sciences are nothing but a hollowed-out shell of a human being engaged in action in the realm of space, in the confines of time, bound by a local domain.
And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the best that has been thought and said. You guys have got to try the cold pie. I had five people. What is the charge? Eating a meal? We spend so much money now that we can borrow nearly $3 billion a day from foreigners. That's a lot of pockets. The wars never end. Release the world. Release the world. Release the world. You are listening to the Culture and Anarchy Podcast. We can't cut anything until we change our philosophy about what government should do. That assumes he doesn't care about political agendas. But I never realized the irrationality of Middle Eastern politics. The wars never end. They attack us because we've been over there. We've been bombing Iraq for 10 years. the best that has been thought and said. As always, featuring the beats of the Passion Hi-Fi on SoundCloud, their track Slaughter and the Spanish Winter. Follow them on SoundCloud, Facebook, and Twitter. Give them a great rating.